We are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 103 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the Libra fallout continues, Polkadot, and some tetherylicious volume. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and joining me, as always, is the one and only Colin G. Platt. How are you doing, Colin G. Platt? I'm doing all right. Happy that the heat wave has left France. Yeah, it got hot there, right? I mean, insanely hot. I, I saw 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, I don't even know what that translates to anymore. The high 90s. Okay. Um, on, on, what was it, uh, Thursday evening. Wow. But yeah, I, I mean, you can tell you've been out of the States for a long time when you don't know how Celsius translates back to Fahrenheit. I think the, Well, you the know, French the French did invest, in, invent the metric system, right? Yeah, maybe that's why Americans disliked it so much for so long. Who knows? Well, they still like the Brits, so I don't know. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, weird uh, political references aside, um, let's get on with the news. Uh, we're going to kick things off just talking about Libra, just because there's been, you know, it's kind of a wash up here. There's so many um, people weighing in on it. Uh, we, we probably won't do this one to death because we've we've covered it a little bit. But uh, I think the the interesting point was actually... This story from the FT, uh, where central bank plans to create digital currencies have received some backing. So the GM of the Bank of International Settlements, aka the Central Bank for Central Banks, Augustine Carstens, uh, has said that global central banks may have to issue their own digital currencies sooner than expected. He also said it might be sooner than we think uh, that there's a market and we need to still be able to provide central bank digital currencies. When asked specifically about Libra, he said, uh, the issue is how will the currency be used? Will there be discovery of information or data that can be used in credit provision? And how about the privacy? How will the privacy be protected? A simple way to regulate this is to start with anti-money laundering rules. That's a very immediate and very obvious concern. He went on to talk about, and I'm quoting here, uh, there needs to be evidence for demand for central bank digital currencies, and it's not clear the demand is there yet. So kind of a, a contradictory set of statements there. You know, is the FT uh, kind of reading between the lines with their headline here? I know um, Augustine and the Bank of International Settlements maybe six months ago, kind of uh, the headlines were much more around how you don't need central bank digital currencies and they were trying to discourage it. Maybe Libra's changed the tone a little bit or has it? I, I mean, I think that's what we said last week is there's there's a high likelihood that it, at least catalysts may be coming into place. It doesn't mean everything's going to happen, but at least it's making the conversation quicker. So, yeah, maybe FT is you know doing what editors do and, and creating a headline that will c- create buzz enough for people to click and, and read. Um, but it, it, the quote in here is, it might be sooner than we think. Um, that we come to markets with these central bank digital currencies, which may or may not be tokens, uh, by the way. But uh, yeah, like I think it's it's very central bankery to balance it and say, yeah, we're not going to do it before the market's ready. So, and there are pros and cons of different um, central bank digital currency approaches because not every uh, sort of digital currency initiative is the same thing. Like if you look at what um, some of the initiatives around JCoin in Japan were looking to do versus what you see coming out of uh, research from the Bank of England versus what you see elsewhere, these things are all quite different in their nature. Uh, What does central bank digital currency mean to you? Is this more like a finality utility supplement coin type of thing or is this something that a consumer would see? I, I think, you know, given the, the sway of like a relation to Libra, if there is one to be drawn from this, it's it's retail focused. It's digital cash. 
Um, and and what would, would you would we really want uh, retail cash? Uh, sort of central bank money to be held in digital wallets like physical cash. Uh, what would that do? So, because I think there is a fear amongst the central bankers that if I can hold digital cash equivalents, what do I need that that's sort of protected in theory or held at the central bank? Do I do I need commercial banks anymore? And what does that do to the commercial banking market? Well, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the, the root of the problem. Is like right now. Um, physically, people are probably limited to how much cash you hold at any given time. I'm, I'm going to guess people our age, it's probably on a given basis no more than about you know, $20, $50, euros sterling uh, or equivalent. Um, it, it's different in other countries. Um, I know that Germany and, and Switzerland are known for being more cash-based amongst the the European countries um, and in you know a lot of the developing world, uh, $100 US bills are, are common currency uh, for buying anything. Uh, you'd go buy a car with those or a house. Um, so there it's different. But you know most of us are constrained by the fact that we don't want to get robbed and lose all that money. Um, making it digital makes it easier to carry, makes it easier to move across borders. Uh, right now, the process is money is physical. Uh, if you want central bank money of of any sort, um, and commercial banks make that digital for us, and they do lots of other things, but uh, that's the venue we need to go to to make a digital payment of any sort, uh, and this potentially gets rid of that, which has lots of downstream implications. And so there's lots of different layers of where digital currency, um, cryptocurrency, whatever you want to call it, depending on your definitions, uh, could impact a consumer. There's there's the conversations about do we do the direct consumer play like Libra, but is there a reserve behind that? Then there's the sort of the commercial bank digital currencies, things like JPM coin. There are rumors now of Goldman looking at similar things where it's actually just representing claims on a on a commercial bank's balance sheet, and then all the way up to central bank digital currency per utility settlement coin, which really is much more about making existing processes more efficient. But if I take that third thing, that central bank digital currency access for institutions, and you link to that what Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, has been saying about opening up the central bank systems to e-money issuers, maybe even to big tech companies, to have more direct access to the clearing infrastructure. Could there be some sort of middle way here where somebody like a Libra, something like that, where the consumer cash is connected back into the central bank systems? Or am I just uh, making things up with, with tea leaves here? Uh, I mean, I, look, I think that there's already some kind of gray area in between because if you point at like the Bank of England, recall that how how many clearing banks did you have as of 12 months ago? Four, five, six, five, four. Yeah, we had four until about uh, 2018 and then ClearBank launched, which yeah. interestingly is an API-driven clearing bank, bank as a service. Mm-hmm. Um, so they that's all they do. Um, yeah. So they're a really interesting organization. But anyway. And and as far as financial systems, the UK is is one of the largest in the world. And if you look at something like uh, ACH in the United States, or if you look at the, the Euro, sing, what is it, single European payment area, basically that's the equivalent of giving every single possible thing registered as a bank direct clearing access, rather than needing to rely on another bank. Now, yeah, there are caveats around it, but it's a significantly larger number than just extrapolating that, that four number from the UK into an economy 10 times the size. Um, you have thousands of clearing potential clearing members in euros or in dollars. Um, I mean, the truth is the UK needed to evolve. It needed to adapt. I think even Canada has a significantly larger number uh, of potential clearing banks at the Bank of Canada. 
I, I don't know if, if it's a move to go all the way out um, and get into the extended reaches of where it could go or if it's someplace in between. But even, again, look at ECB, uh, especially during the crisis, and I believe even on an ongoing basis, the largest corporations can still have access in some cases to the central bank accounts. And it wasn't so long ago that U.S. retail consumers could do the same with the Fed. That's pretty interesting, isn't it, that uh, you know, th- there's some history to learn from here. So if, if I'm sitting at a bank, there's there's some insights there in terms of the tech may or may not change here, but actually what, what may change is uh, the consumer's ability to access that digitally. Um, so you know, maybe the central banks haven't been kick-started into action, but maybe they've been accelerated. Um, there was another article this week that I thought was that got a bit of pickup. Um, I have no idea how to pronounce the name of this outlet. Kioneki, maybe? Um, But the headline reads, five reasons why Facebook's new cryptocurrency Libra is bad news for Africa. Um, Let's go through these one by one and see if we can agree. Um, Libra coin is digital colonization by proxy. Can we put the massive caveat that like Africa is not one country um, and neither you or I are experts on Africa. And I know you've traveled a bit there for work. I've traveled a bit there, like not for work. Um, Love the place. Uh, I even lived in Northern Africa. Uh, But, you know, things are very different. um, And I think some of their points are different. Digital colonialization, I don't know. Um, But it definitely does bring up a couple of questions about um, whether this brings the idea of worker exploitation that we are concerned about in things like the gig economy. Yeah, I think there's something interesting about, um, you know, is this... uh, the West Coast tech trying to save the world and actually completely misunderstanding it. I think that's a fair observation. Uh, Point number two was Libra coin is a threat to African central bank money and monetary policy. Um, How about that one? Uh, So again, not not one country. Um, So bear in mind, author uh, heavily focused on East Africa, believe based in Kenya. Um, So I I think he's involved with uh, Andreessen Horwitz, I believe. I may be wrong on this one or formerly was. Um, So... In a lot of Western African countries, their currency is based on the euro. Um, so the, the West African franc is actually a claim on euros held, and dollars, I believe, at the, the Bank of Banque de France, the Central Bank of France. It's a weird setup, um, but would this necessarily directly affect that? Only to the point that it uh, undermines the dollar or the euro. Uh, in countries with free-floating currencies, I'll take South Africa as an example, or um, to the extent they are, I, I'm not sure either way. Uh, Kenya or Tanzania, it may uh, be different. Okay, uh, good mix. Um, Libra coin is apparently <laughs> a threat to African sovereignty and the African people. Uh, that's quite a big statement. I mean, I guess uh, I'll go go through some of the other ones and your caveat about Africa is not one country, it's it's many, many countries, um, sticks. But the other one is Africa would give up control of its digital economy and uh, it would be Big Brother Africa. I mean, there's a lot of reading between the lines about Libra's, is is Libra actually going to execute and is it actually going to deliver? And, and it's intent and it seems to be quite a... Um, Quite a, a, a dystopian lens on on a lot of this stuff. I mean, where do you stand generally on Libra being dystopian? Uh, on it being dystopian, I, I I think that's definitely a risk. Um, but I, I wouldn't pin that on any any given country. The idea that uh, even even at its full implemented plans, a hundred companies around the world can censor if this thing really takes off, um, potentially two point four billion people's transactions, in the same way that it censors Facebook's. Uh, media platform is worrying. Uh, whether that is uh, an actual possibility, 
I'd question uh, because I would imagine that central banks would would want to see rules and controls put in place so that couldn't happen unless there was some kind of court order. Um, but I mean, the the scarier thing, and and looking back at some of what what the author has pulled out here, um, Alipay. Uh, China is moving into Africa in a big way, and especially East Africa. And I don't want a China scare because I think there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. Um, but you know, they are completely centralized platforms. And if uh, investments start coming more and more from from China into East Africa, as they have done, um, maybe it might make sense that they start using Alipay um, in the same way that M-Pesa is used in in Kenya. And maybe that grows. Uh, does that have less of a threat? Uh, to any one of these five points that the authors pointed out, I don't think one's better than the other. Um, and if anything, you know, they're both quite dystopian. Yeah, it's interesting. So we did a, a newsletter related to uh, 11FS Pulse, which is on a platform that has videos of things like uh, how Alipay does payments, how um, Tencent and WeChat do payments, how Google Tez does payments in India. And, and actually, you see that this is this is a, a multifaceted environment in a lot of these markets where there are a lot of centralized options already. And a lot of the points being made against Facebook Libra would be equally true against any of those being the dominant payment infrastructure. So it's going to be interesting to watch that sort of play out. But um, look, that's enough about uh, Libra. I'm sure you guys are probably going to sick to death of that as, as listeners. So um, maybe it's time to shill it, baby, one more time. Um, this episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, R3's Corda is an open source blockchain platform designed specifically for business. Corda is an open source project written in one of the fastest growing languages around Kotlin, which runs on the Java virtual machine, meaning you can build blockchain apps known as Corda apps in any JVM language of your choice. The latest version, Corda 4, features 1,800 plus commits and multiple features that enable you to accelerate your vision of delivering DLT applications. Visit Corda.net to join the community uh, and check out their uh, free versions of uh, Corder Enterprise at r3.com. Shout out to friend of the show, Todd McDonald. Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, next story comes from The Telegraph, and this talks about the UK crypto scene being set for a boost as a London firm is poised for an FCA approval. Um, Colin, what, what, are the, what are the bullets on this one? Um, you know, the same thing you guys always like to shill. Uh, the UK, I mean, has been has been a leader in a lot of the space, and it's great to see what the FCA has been doing. Um, Prime Factor Capital is one of those companies out there that's uh, looking to, to work within uh, the rules. Uh, FCA is moving forward, is being quite positive. They're, they're as, as the name suggests, they're a capital firm based, based in the UK looking at cryptocurrencies, um, wanting to try to um, help act as a, as a broker on a large scale. Um, and uh, one of the really interesting things, I think, uh, about the FCA has been trying to not only do this in kind of this small controlled way, but actually saying, look, you can set up a full-scale business. Um, it's still, you know, a bit selling the idea of, you know, come do business in the UK, uh, which is great, needs to happen with the the overall political macro thing. Um, what is, I think, even more interesting is how, what will happen with these firms uh, if and when those arrangements change, but nobody really knows what they're going to be in, in six months' time. I think that the big piece here is if they do get this license, as is rumored, they will be able to manage, quote, unlimited amounts of capital, uh, whereas the asset managers today, the regulated asset managers uh, in the UK are capped at 100 million euros. Um, now, they, there's all kinds of catches with the authorization. It means you've got to have a, uh, a regulated third party that provides oversights on, on processes. But to your point, I mean, generally, my experience of the FCA has been that they're 
Uh, not always the very, very first to do something, but when they do something, it's it, they're one of the first major economies to do it, and it's usually pretty well thought through. Um, so I guess that sort of uh, that London London is open, uh, the UK is open, fintech is still a thing, uh, may be a, a factor here, but I don't doubt that the hard yards have been done um, over in Stratford either to, to kind of get their head around this one and do the due diligence on, on ensuring that this organization is doing what it needs to, uh, to protect uh, investors and, and uh, fit within the rules of law. Surely, surely. And, and I guess my big question is, uh, if, if a passporting regime in the European Union ends for this, um, is Malta or Luxembourg or Germany or France ready to take them? Or Ireland or whoever else. So um, I, I think generally the, the FCA is seen as a good jurisdiction to have the stamp from versus um, perhaps a, a sort of smaller offshore jurisdictions where uh, you know, kind of some of the some of the other larger economies may not always look on that as an immediate pass. And also um, passporting is sort of you, you in theory have an ability to operate there, but don't expect to just open an office and start operating without at least having had a conversation with the regulator and having had them get closer to what you do. Your know, passporting sounds like something like it, you just go to the airport and you're in that country and you can operate. It, it's not as simple as that. There's a bit more to it. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, as a company that wants to have more than 100 million under management, um, euros being kind of the key in, in the gist of what I'm going for, um, it, it's great to see the FCA moving faster with these things. Um, it's just if, if we have hard Brexit, it's going to really challenge this company. Indeed. Well, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's a, even if we can get to a divorce bill and then renegotiate something. I think uh, there was a story about how uh, the uh, European Union had negotiated a deal with the Latin American trade bloc, um, the South American trade bloc, and uh, they had uh, taken about 20 years to get that deal done. So time horizons there to, to just kind of give you some sort of feel for what, how long these things take. Listen, the next story came from financemagnates.com, and it's sort of linked. Uh, this is about uh, Globacap launching an FCA-regulated digital security offering platform. Um, so what stood out to you about this one? Yeah, so this, um, I mean, kind of a similar, similar vein. Um, the FCA kind of is proving that the sandbox actually works for these companies, which is great. Um, and I know a lot of the other regulators have been looking at the the FCA's model of a sandbox uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, across the European Union, and and in East Asia. Um, it's it's great to see that a company comes in, figures out what it needs to do to comply with the rules, um, gets input from the regulator in this case, the FCA, and is now actually launching this thing as a, as a full platform. So digital securities offerings, uh, STOs, is something we've been talking about for a while. Um, market structure needs to catch up with it if these things ever have a chance. I think the United States is going to be much harder than Europe from from uh, legal experts I've been speaking with. Um, but you know, at least within for now within Europe, uh, it's still a compelling offer, uh, at least to the extent that crowdfunding of other sorts is. So why might somebody want a digital security offering platform? Who who wants this? Who's the buyer, and what do they get that they couldn't have before? That's a, that's a good question, um, and I think that that's that's part of why. I, I've been skeptical about the offer for a while. Um, it, it's unclear why you would want to hold a token as a security. Um, sorry, a security as a token. Um, the only real thing that has jumped out um, and is something that a lot of people have discussed, um, which is kind of weird and esoteric, is this idea of being able to hold these things directly in the same way that we're talking about CBDC. Uh, how is that different from physical cash? 
we can kind of draw parallels across to this. Other than that, um, either you have something completely decentralized, in which case it's not a security in theory, or you have something that has lots of these checks and balances, in which case you're just piling on cost and uh, latency when, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to hold something and get paid dividends or coupons. Yeah, it, it, there's an interesting question about actually, can you fit within the regulations and can you di- genuinely deliver something that is uh, more efficient? And the, the CSDs that kind of hold the key to a lot of that. I guess so, what's interesting here is um, Global Cap have been in the uh, FCA sandbox uh, and they, uh, their CEO, Miles Milston, um, said the sandbox program has actually been a great experience, enabling them to come to market with uh, new technology. Technology, um, and they are looking to uh, kind of work with uh, Project Innovate to continue to roll that out. Um, so I guess the the example here again of having this this sort of sandbox approach is is interesting. We see these things start to creep through, um, but do you know if, if you're sitting in the uh, in inside the bank and you're looking at this, does this mean that? You feel there's a bit more permission in the regulators in Europe to to try some of these things and see if there's some client demand for for buying some of these things. And also, would you buy the argument that said um, there's at least an opportunity to rethink the cost structure of market structure if you're on the buy side versus say in the bank side? Yeah, so I think I think there's a couple of interesting things in there. First is um, definitely for different participants, there's there's different value propositions. Um, I think in all cases, uh, and this is why I've been very skeptical about securities offerings. Um, nobody's really come up with a formal what what makes sense and where for any participant, um, and especially when you start compounding stuff on top of that. I think we've seen more uh, more love for these things in Europe because we have we happen to have monolithic regulators, um, one or two regulators that manage the entire financial system versus the United States, we have uh, more than 50. Um, so uh, who can really take this thing? I mean, we, we look at things like Wyoming and Wyoming wants to take an approach, but Wyoming's a state of half a million people. Um, and let's just imagine if Manchester decided that you know they were going to allow uh, something to happen and then what would happen in the rest of the UK? They'd probably go, well, that's fantastic within Manchester, um, but what happens beyond Manchester? Uh, that's where we are in the United States. Um, what's happening here is at least the UK can say, you know what, here's the the confines, what we want you to do to make sure everything's up to par. Um, and you go out and prove whether you have a business case or not. We don't really care if you do or don't. Um, so we'll see if it takes off. Um, I'm still waiting to see, you know, what is that kind of click of what is really better about a token? I haven't seen it quite yet for any participant. Yeah, I guess um, this kind of comes back to the old, uh, are the institutions coming from the bottom up rather than the top down? Uh, from the bottom up, I think there's a lot of curiosity, uh, a lot of people working with smaller players to see what's happening. Uh, and actually, some of these smaller players getting regulated and starting to offer it to other smaller players in the market uh, is classical disruption. It's it, it, Disruption typically comes from the edges and from the bottom, not, not directly from the top. So uh, we're seeing uh, disruptive, Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation kind of model start to play out. Um, and can we find value there? I mean, one of the uh, interesting things, uh, I remember the early days of social networks, everybody asked, you know, what's the value there? Who's going to use this? How are these things ever going to make money? Uh, and that's not a question people ask anymore. So it doesn't have to be the case that there's a really clear business case for there to be a there there. Um, but also, uh, it really does if you're an incumbent and you have clients and they have expectations and you've got shareholders to deliver for. And that's quite a different thing. So, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, next story comes from 
from Coindesk.com. Uh, the Ethereum co-founders Polkadot closes their token sale, uh, claiming a $1.2 billion valuation. So the Web3 Foundation said last week that uh, 500,000 DOT tokens, apparently 5% of the total supply, uh, were sold at the targeted valuation for the project of $1.2 billion. Um, before we get into kind of this token sale. Just remind us of what Polkadot's ambitions are, what were they trying to do, and who are some of the people involved? So Polkadot was uh, was founded by Gavin Wood, who was uh, one of the early team members for Ethereum uh, back in 2014 onwards, um, and believe he he left after the mainnet launched in uh, mainnet launched in August 2015. He left to set up a private company uh, shortly thereafter. Um, so the original idea um, was they had set up Parity. Um, Parity was another client, uh, much like the the Go Ethereum client Geth. Um, he Gavin originally wrote the C client, which is no longer around. He took a lot of his work um, and built a, I believe it's Rust client on Parity. Um, the idea that he then kind of took forward was like, um, we see blockchains as the next evolution of an of the internet, um, something they call Web3, lots of stuff with IoT and, and connections and everything on top of that, uh, goes well beyond my, my realm of fascination. Um, but what they did identify, which I think is quite clever, is the notion that blockchains will need to talk to each other. Um, multiple blockchains intercommunicating, rather than the, the simple, let's just have them API into each other and put somebody in the middle, they wanted to create another decentralized network um, to the extent which it can kind of come about and actually function remains to be seen, but it is kind of an interesting interweave between uh, lots of different blockchains, lots of different ways of doing these things, and ways that a decentralized network could sort of act as a clearinghouse between them. It's going to be interesting to see how the uh, Web3 story develops. Um, there's also uh, a couple of interesting uh, Twitter investors who are you know, really investing in that Web3 thesis. Um, Consensus as well also talk a lot about Web3, and I guess this harkens back to Web2.0. Uh, in Web2.0, this was you know around the time of YouTube and Facebook and all of the social networks, this this second uh, movement of the internet with the Web 1.0 being kind of email and HTTP and websites. Web 2 is these services that are sort of centralized and Web 3 is this idea of what does the decentralized web look like? Is it more resilient? Is it more private? Is it something that uh, doesn't rely on these centralized actors taking all of your data and monetizing you as the product? Can you have different business models if you have different architectures? Which is an interesting question. Um, there are, the jury's still out on a lot of this stuff, but it's certainly not um, struggling to raise funding. Yeah, no, they certainly um, they managed to raise $60 million-ish um, on a $1.2 billion valuation, so they sold 5% of the company. Um, I, I was just having a conversation with somebody, and we were talking about Gnosis, which was uh, launched about two and a half years ago, um, and it sold 5% of its tokens for $12.5 million, so it worked out to be a... 300 million valuation and people were saying that's obscene uh this is four times higher so um it, you know maybe maybe the good days they're they're coming back uh if, if you want to call them good well but, but i think if you look back at the macro trends what are, what is the consumer really concerned about it's privacy you know browsers like brave and the basic attention token may not be finished but certainly um firefox and opera are adding uh kind of a the ability to 
block adverts, but B, now sort of baking the beginnings of crypto wallets into their browsing experience. It does feel like there's a bit of a movement there to uh, kind of make the experience of the internet better that's not reliant on advertising data. And there's there's a movement to finding other business models. And I think you could even put Libra in that bucket. It's a movement by a big tech incumbent to find another business model uh, based around a new tech architecture. So it's interesting in early days, but... So, you can, if you wind the clock back to the early days of the internet, uh, a lot of those things were interesting in early days, and a lot of it was ridiculous. And it's hard to tell what's the ridiculous stuff and what's really got legs here. But the stuff that does crack through may be, may be really worth your time. Um, and uh, just uh, it, producer Petrit put something in my notes here as well that when we did the uh, when we did the 2019 predictions, I predicted there'd be apparently big movements in Web 3.0. I had no idea that Polkadot were raising and I had no idea this was happening. But my spidey sense just sort of says, there's, there's something in this set of ideas. Um, but I can't tell whether that's, you know, for the really hardcore internet nerds and companies like Cloudflare who are building better VPNs and better ways to manage internet security. And is it a cybersecurity conversation? Is it a business model conversation? Or is there a realistic financial services conversation here? Funny you mentioned Cloudflare, because like as I was going through reading these an hour ago, like Cloudflare had like screwed up and gone down on a bunch of websites, and I couldn't access them. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, you know, um, I, I'm still generally short the tre- trend of Web 3.0. Um, I, I think it's interesting, um, but if you start to dig into it, I think there's a lot of things that just don't hold together. And where they're trying to bring the idea of, of an economy and, and making these things decentralized, they've, they're very quick to look over the fact of what's happening. And it's not just to say, you know, people aren't using this right now. That's an easy criticism. But when you actually start putting together the economics of even where these things want to be, the puzzle pieces just don't fit. And maybe somebody will figure it out, but um, I don't know if this is it quite yet. I think there's there's ample opportunity to get closer to building for the customer problem proposition here. Uh, the the deep tech stuff is being done, but it's hard to tell what that Amazon.com consumer facing thing that sits on top of these things really is. Sure. And, and look, it's super early, but somebody's got to start taking those risks at some point. And actually, if there is this decentralized infrastructure for financial services, if there is this decentralized infrastructure for the web, how would we think about building products and services on top of that? How would you get closer to the customer problem? And how would you think about where you can add value to those customers, uh, either in a, in a retail or a, or a business context? But who's making money here? I mean, it's right now in cryptocurrency, it's exchanges because they offer services that let people bet on the volatility of cryptocurrencies. And you know, Binance announced a few hours ago as we're recording this, um, they're going to allow you to do leverage on these things. Uh, it's can I gamble more faster? So look at what's happening in Las Vegas and say, how can I decentralize that? And I think that's probably slightly closer to your answer. Uh, well, we'll see how this plays out. We've got the FT.com, um, and uh, their headline is, uh, whatever, <laughs> see what you did there, whatever could be going on with the Bitcoin price. Uh, this was, uh, of course, by uh, the wonderful Jemima Kelly over at the FT, um, giving a real deep dive uh, into, oh, no, apologies. It was not by Jemima. It was by uh, Eva Sasley. Um, apologies, uh, Eva. Um, so this is really kind of 
we hear this consistently, Colin, that uh, every time Bitcoin pumps, uh, people have their theories about it, but there's a lot of tether rushing into the markets. Remind everybody, what's tether? Uh, why is that linked to Bitcoin? And then where do you stand on this? So tether is a stable coin. Uh, it's in theory backed one to one by money in a bank account or other short term deposits, or as it turns out, based off of uh, New York AG uh, legal filings, a loan to Bitfinex. Um, so they have come under a lot of fire recently, um, over the last two years, actually, sorry. So not even recently in cryptocurrency terms, um, they kind of went from a backwater, uh, when they launched in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, um, kind of like with minimal AUM, uh, and then they pulled that up over a billion dollars. The other day I looked at it, it was like three and a half billion. Uh, a lot of people don't believe the idea that Tether actually has all this money and think that have have been creating some or all of it out of thin air without actually backing it. Um, or some have, have uh, thought that maybe they're using this to pump up cryptocurrency prices, uh, going even as far as speculating of whether, um, whether Tether is backed by Bitcoin rather than dollars in a bank account. Um, because they have been watching these things of Tether getting created on, on the blockchain. So Tether lives inside of Omni, which lives on top of Bitcoin. Um, so you can think of it as like a, something like an ERC-20 token um, popular in Ethereum. They actually also exist on that inside of Bitcoin. Um, so why why have they been making this uh, thing? Well, I mean, my take is slightly different. Uh, there is definitely market manipulation, whether it's Tether, I don't know, whether it's people just looking at and front-running the prices because they go, Tether's being created, somebody's going to buy in half a million dollars or $100 million uh, using uh, Tether to buy Bitcoin or whatever else it's going to buy, and they go try to run the price up before that happens. I don't know which one it is, but there are definitely a lot of questions and they probably aren't using uh, the same level of caution and discretion that a financial bank, uh, financial institution like a bank would use. So there's doubt there, but there's there's also, um, you can't just put it down to one thing. I think it's probably over, overly simplistic to say uh, every time the price bumps, it's just there's, there's printing of a load of tether. There's 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 more going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's a, it's a quite a complicated thing and I think it's more... It's definitely not 100% where it should be. Um, I think even by the, the admission of the people who they have quoted in this article and, and the Decrypt Media article uh, that came out last week looking at this, um, of things that you go, well, that's just not how you should be doing it. But again, remember, this is going on to a public blockchain, which means anybody can just sit there and watch it happen in a node. Um, and if they're going to try to make money out of this, they're going to look at it and they're going to say, I have this information, I'm going to go trade this information. So they, they are front-running Tether, um, and that's just the way it is. Like It's not necessarily Tether's fault, it's just the design of the system. In the same way that you know people will look at commodities orders uh, coming from the China, China to the US, and they'll say, oh, okay, I see that a boat has moved over, I think the price of this commodity is going up or down. Um, and they're just doing the same thing. So I've, I'm not saying everything Tether is rosy or hunky-dory or anything like that, um, but I, I don't know it's quite what has been encapsulated in this article. And I think it's it's kind of an easy target, right? There's there's definitely there's a there there. There's a reason for people's suspicions, but there's also a lot of other things going on. There was a nugget in this article that stood out to me. Um, said that last month a group of fifty companies, including Jump Trading, um, DRW, and of course um, Galaxy Digital from Mike Novogratz, uh, formed a group to develop deep, efficient, and secure market. Um, I wasn't aware that Jump Trading were involved in in that effort. Um, so there's uh, there's a whole bunch of 
work to sort of uh, around this narrative of the institutions are coming. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if if that starts to gain some some real momentum or whether or not the institutions are are not coming. But that's a narrative that's been around for quite some time. I guess the. Whenever there's a, somebody pushing a really simplistic narrative, uh, the chances are there's actually, it's a lot more complex than that. There's about 18 things going on. But if you zoom out from all of that, you know, what, what does it mean? Because we've seen uh, interest in you know, various structured product teams potentially looking at this space. You've got various people from uh, different parts of banks looking to offer this to potentially to high net worth clients. Uh, is Bitcoin still poison or is that starting to turn around? Uh, you know, People love those sound bites, and let's look back to when they were saying all these things. They were like, as the market was crashing from higher than where it is now, or about where it was now, down to a third of where it is now. Um, so, from a purely trading point of view, if you had taken the advice of somebody like a Jamie Dimon and or Warren Buffett, you'd probably be financially better off <laughs> if you knew how to trade it. Um, so, you know. Uh, People that are skeptics aren't always wrong. People that are cheering it on aren't always right. Um, and I think with each, you need to take this batch. But to the extent that institutions are coming, I think they're still worried about um, about these markets and um, worried about the integrity of them. And that's something that uh, if, if these exchanges are actually serious about wanting to get institutions in a meaningful way and wanting to build those into actual businesses, because for the most part, uh, institutional-focused exchanges, not brokerages, but exchanges, have found it very, very hard to run their businesses and have had minimal volumes. Um, brokerages are a very different setup and have been more successful on this um, because they can also work across uh, different liquidity venues. Um, but you know, for now, uh, retail still rules the roost um, outside of perhaps Bitcoin OTC trading. There's a show title, Retail Rules the Roost. Say that twice backwards. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, Colin. Uh, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, Coindesk.com. A wannabe Netflix raised $575 million on Ethereum, then ditched crypto. Uh, well, well worth a read. Uh, Finextra.com. ICAP launches a digital asset market, also worth looking into. Uh, the FT.com. Bitcoin's second coming makes Wall Street think again on crypto, which I guess to the point we were just making is, is a bit of a theme at the moment. Uh, now, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from uh, the Pomp himself, a Pompolino, and it reads, uh, This Week in Crypto, Square's Cash App adds Bitcoin deposits, Ledger X, Physical Bitcoin Futures, OK, Henry Kravis backs a crypto fund, Good, nice one, Henry, Gemini opens a Chicago office, uh, Amon launches Bitwise 10 ETP, one for the nerds. Samurai Wallet releases CoinJoin. Bitcoin is still not dead. The virus is spreading. Fire emoji. Colin? I hate Pomp's tweets. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, Pomp is uh, one letter away from, from what a lot of the tweets do. Um, it, it's, it's excitement and enthusiasm. I, I think, do, are there any of the points that are made there that, um, that stand out to you as being significant or interesting, and if so, why? Well, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm critical of him because of how he spreads the message. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there's some interesting things. So this Ledger X uh, physical Bitcoin futures. Uh, the other one that was announced, I think, just this morning or just a few hours ago, uh, was Eris, 
um, have announced that they're doing physical Bitcoin futures. Uh, you know, to the extent that these things need to happen, physical Bitcoin futures make a whole lot more sense from a financial point of view than the cash held ones at CME. So if and when they kind of get onto venues that people trust, uh, it, it could create a better way for markets to uh, do price discovery. Um, and this could change a lot of the dynamic. But again, let's go back to what we just said. Institutions just aren't there yet. Well, we'll see if they come from the bottom up and we'll see if these developments slowly, slowly get there. These things seem to be inching forward rather than marching forward. Um, and uh, yeah, that doesn't mean don't pay attention. It means uh, it might not be as fast as some of the people suggesting it is, may, may think it is. And there's no virus. Um, indeed, something like that. Uh, it's, it's like a really lazy virus. Except for, um, did you hear that crypto is actually a virus? The, the US CDC was warning about it. Mm, did not know that, um, but that's, there's there's some virus that is, they shortened as crypto that like lives in a swimming pool and you can get sick. Wow, Colin, um, how you pick these things up, I'll never know. Um, that gives me a perfect. <laughs> easy segue to uh, letting our listeners know that um, before we disappear, we had a, a chat with uh, Brian Bellendorf, who's the exec director of Hyperledger. And uh, he had a lot of interesting things to say. Some of the announcements uh, are now fairly well known, but uh, it was a great conversation. Over to uh, Brian. Welcome to Blockchain Insider Interviews. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Brian Bellendorf. How are you doing, Brian? Very well. Thank you for joining us. For those of you that don't know, of course, uh, Brian is the executive director of the Hyperledger Project at the Linux Foundation. Uh, so uh, just uh, give us the background story once again. I know we, we did talk to you before about 30 episodes ago, but just the 30-second version, Linux Foundation, Hyperledger Project, worth a refresher. So Linux, Linux Foundation has been around for over 15 years. It's a uh, consortium of over 1,000 different companies that come together to provide kind of the air traffic control, if you think of it that way, for a number of different open source projects. Initially, just the Linux kernel, uh, and then growing beyond that to automotive, software-defined uh, software networking, cloud computing, the home for the Kubernetes project, for example, is something called the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. Uh, and then three years ago, in this uh, interesting space called blockchain technology, and with the launch of Hyperledger. So Hyperledger exists to kind of help be uh, a home for different distributed ledger and smart contract applications, uh, and with a home for projects like Hyperledger Fabric and Sawtooth and Indie, which is in the digital identity space. Uh, and uh, But really, we don't pay for the code to be written. We're the kind of home for uh, the kind of coordinating all of the development activities that are going on out there and making sure that it's uh, software that enterprises can trust. Which is interesting because people often view open source software perhaps incorrectly in some parts of enterprise as being kind of the wild west and it's open source and can I really trust it? Thankfully, I think we're sort of 10 years beyond that for the most part now, but actually good governance around that is super helpful. And, and people still, I think, out there think it's written by volunteers or by charity. Uh, and most of the software development uh, in open source code, uh, open, the open source space is written by companies who realize they have a common vested interest. And our job is to try to weave these common interests closely enough and make sure these companies uh, think about investing into that common platform so that they can actually spend most of their time on what actually matters above that common layer. I hear you. Well, uh, you last joined us on episode 16. We're now well up over 100 episodes. So um, it's, been, it's been a short while. Um, what's been the thing that's been you know, kind of the major macro theme and trend you've seen probably over the last 12 months to 18 months in the enterprise uh, kind of DLT space? Sure. Uh, uh, well, we've gone both deep and broad. 
So deep means we have now uh, four different blockchain technologies in production. They have achieved that kind of 1.0 status, and they're being used out there and creating real value. And that is projects like Hyperledger Fabric, which uh, has now over 200 different production networks out there. And these are not just users or companies. These are networks of things that we know of, like the uh, uh, the, the Walmart and IBM kind of network around, food, called the Food Trust Network, uh, or uh, different trade finance networks, supply chain networks, that sort of thing. Uh, as well as Hyperledger Sawtooth, mm-hmm. which uh, is actually even uh, I, I, that's you know been in production use now for over a year, uh, and has uh, been one of the first to really pioneer the use of things like integration with Ethereum smart contracts and different ways of uh, uh, doing uh, transaction processing is kind of a, a term that they use there. Um, uh, and then Hyperledger Indy is in production now. Uh, uh, this thing called the Sovereign uh, Foundation is using it as the basis for their self-sovereign ID network. Um, but there are uh, prototype networks in place in the government of Canada, uh, the British Columbia uh, uh, province is running it for business registrations, that sort of thing. Um, and then we've gone broad in terms of there's a lot of new projects that have come up. We're now at 14 different uh, wow. technology initiatives, think of them that way, uh, plus Hyperledger Labs, plus all these special interest groups. So so we're kind of fanning out and trying to make sure we have this really rich portfolio of different smart contract projects, different uh, distributed ledger projects. And our goal is to kind of be a place where these things come together and standardize on common uh, libraries, common idioms, common uh, uh, things, so that in the long run, we try to make this stuff simpler for for end users. I think that sounds great. Uh, You briefly touched there on Hyperledger Indie and uh, digital identity. We've we've seen a lot, I think, around those um, chain of custody, chain of proof, sort of trade finance type of applications for for quite some time. And I think Hyperledger Fabric has been really, really strong in that space historically. But the the Hyperledger Indie, just take another step back through self-sovereign identity, because I think that a lot of people have different perceptions of what self-sovereign identity means. So like, set it up with what problem does it solve? And then let's bust some myths and then talk about the possibilities. Right. So the traditional model of digital identity, right, is that it's it's your Facebook profile, it's your uh, uh, profile at other social networks, um, where all the interesting stuff about you is managed on a remote server somewhere, and your access to it is through a name and password. Yes. Uh, and actually, the cryptocurrency community, I think, helped pivot a lot of people's understanding of identity, not only by giving you an address on those networks that was really yours, you had the private key associated with that address and could prove it was you, um, uh, but also got people into the habit of thinking of things like wallets and and things that are independent of any service provider, any custodian that they would work with, any exchange they might work with, right? That's interesting. Now, extend that to NFTs, non-fungible tokens. You know, I own this house or I own this collectible, you know, either entirely virtual one or a title to something in in the real world. Um, But let's also think about extending that to things like diplomas, right? Or birth certificates or driver's licenses or or passports. Um, Lots of different digital passport approaches out there, but they all tended to be closed networks, walled gardens that, whose definition of interoperability was, you know, uh, some organization would be the center point and know every time that you logged in or try to present that credential somewhere else. So for 20 years, I mean, even before the word blockchain was in common, use, the digital identity community has been trying to figure out how do we be less like AOL or less like Prodigy or less like CompuServe in that model and more like the internet, where you had one wallet 
that brought all these things together, just like you have one mail client. Yeah, right? or one browser. Or- right. And where those keys that you hold, just like in the cryptocurrency setting, are sovereign, meaning no one can take those away from you. No one could censor them. No one could suddenly render those moot. Just like I shouldn't be able to take your diploma away, and your diploma should be valid even if the school that awarded it goes out of business. Yeah. Right? It shouldn't have to sit on that school's web server for you to be able to prove you went to that school and graduated. So to make all this actually work, blockchains, distributed ledgers, give us this interesting third place to be able to prove, for me to prove to you that this diploma is valid and it hasn't been revoked or it hasn't been nullified uh, by yeah, something It's still else. valid, yeah. And it's still valid, right? Um, and so I, I, a lot of there's been a lot of gravitation towards a set of common standards to be able to build this kind of interoperability. So things like the DID specification for distributed identifiers, yeah. verifiable proofs, all sorts of things, and consent receipts, that sort of thing. Um, uh, and then uh, um, Hyperledger Indie, which really came to us from a group of folks who started Sovereign and started uh, Evernim, which is yeah. a company that's been building this stuff. Uh, uh, um, Indie was designed to be, here's software to run these kinds of identity networks. Um, there may be multiple of them out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sovereign uh, Foundation's network is an example of one of those. Um, it could be that it goes the direction of DNS and ICANN, where you know we just need one. Um, could be that we have a, set, a handful. We could have a hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been great to see the industry, whether it's startups like Evernim and foundations like Sovereign, or companies like IBM, Accenture, even Microsoft now gravitating to these standards. And uh, we certainly hope that Hyperledger Indie makes it easy to adopt those standards. Which I think is an interesting parallel. For a long time, people were talking about sort of. Uh, the whole space of blockchain and DLT being an, an upgrade to different types of protocols for the internet. And actually that concept of this is that third place you can go to verify something. I'm getting away from client-server, you know, point-to-point integrations of the master-slave model and, and actually having this third sort of place in which I can start to play yeah. that is not owned by anybody. And I sort of get data sovereignty a little bit more. And we saw this with the GDPR regulation, general data protection regulation, of which there are many bills around the world now trying to uh, replicate that, where the idea that I could own my own data is enshrined in law, but not always technically feasible and not the reality. So what you end up with is some tick box process in which I just end up signing over all of my rights again back to the companies on some, you know, kind of every time I go on a website now, not only do I have to accept their tracking cookies, I also have to accept their privacy policy. I also have to accept their GDPR rules. It just became like an annoyance rather than me actually owning my data. As somebody who is a partial midwife to the cookie standard, I Uh, have been atoning for that uh, by, uh, (laughs) I think, working on this. But no, the traditional architectures of the surveillance economy were not designed with things like the GDPR in mind. And uh, not designed around the granting and management of consent, Mm -hmm. not designed around kind of treating data as it's an asset, but it's sometimes a toxic asset. It's kind of like nuclear waste or uh, at the very least oil where you don't really want to have it at home and store it because you might spill it. It might be problematic, right? Like you want to find some way to kind of effectively manage both uh, uh, how people understand how you're using their data, but give them the ability to, to withdraw consent for it as well. And, and, and things like the GDPR are a nice um, uh, regulatory backstop to an architecture, a technical architecture. And with DIDs, and we think with Hyperledger Indie, now you have the technical architecture that's a better match for that. It, Vitalik's been saying recently that uh, data has gone from a net uh, asset to a net liability. And I think it's probably, uh, it, there's an interesting inflection point that's coming in which, you know, like, 
is actually holding a lot of data about my customer, opening up my uh, cybersecurity risk. Is there an increased tax attack surface? Will I become the next Target? Will I become the next Sony? Will I become the next Equifax? Or is it actually something that allows me to uh, understand customers better, target better offers at them? And I think it's neither side of that spectrum, but it is probably time to rethink like the data hoarding model is the only way to monitor. Ab- absolutely. Like think about your shipping address. Does Amazon need to know your shipping address? Right? Do they really need to have it? Or if they knew that every time you made it placed an order, you automatically gave them your address, they could use it temporarily to be able to relay it to the shipper, and then they could destroy it. That's a much better model, right? And if they could show that they've got, let's say it's not a shipping address, let's say it's a healthcare record. Mm-hmm. If they know they could always access it and they had proof in the, the ledger, right, somewhere that they had the rights to it, right, that it'd be easier to be able to say, I don't need to actually physically possess it in, or, or store it in my cloud when I know I can go and get it when I need it. You must get this question a lot about the the DLT versus crypto world, and you know there is the I, I think there are probably extremists on either side of this conversation of like uh, you know, there is no type of token that can ever exist. Uh, anything Bitcoin is pure evil, and and the spawn of the you know the Nero Rubini camp. But also, I would put quite a lot of bankers in that category, quite frankly. And then you got the other end of the spectrum that basically says anything that's not Bitcoin is terrible, like. Are you observing that dialogue moving forward in any way? Or I mean, because there's always going to be people on either end of the spectrum. And and what are you seeing when you speak to enterprise, when you speak to other foundations and peers, when you speak to uh, some of the startups out there? Has that conversation begun to move on in a substantive way? It's very much like in the 90s with the rise of both, well, free software and open source software. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the Catholic and Protestant kind of like debate, <laughs> right? Like. Uh, and, and oftentimes, I think it was Michael Tiemann, who was at Red Hat, who said, um, I, I, if Richard Stallman hadn't existed, we would have had to invent him. So the rest <laughs> of us could actually look like reasonable moderates by comparison. Uh, and I think all of us had a moment, I don't know if you did, but like where you read the GNU Manifesto or you read kind of the early history of free software and it resonates at a deep level. Yeah. Right? At a moment where it's like, right, having access to the source code behind how my car works or if there's software in a doorknob is actually not that far removed from talking about human rights and civil liberties and morality. Yeah. Um, now, for a lot of us, there is the, the the maximalist path to that, and then there is the pragmatic path to that, right? And the pragmatic path was, I think, what was uh, adopted by the open source community, which was uh, in the term open source, which was to say, is there a way that we can make making source code kind of first first order, like make, make it something that companies did naturally, they found a way to rationalize, mm-hmm. even though it seems like I'm giving away IP. No, there's actually a pragmatic reason to do that because I can collaborate with other parties because I can get better transparency into other people's code, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, but it's but and 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 we'd turn to the maximalists, we'd turn to the Stalmanites, and say, think of us as a gateway drug yeah. to to the free software objectives that that you have and that we share. We're just not absolutist about it, right? Yeah. So map that now to the blockchain space. I have a lot of resonance uh, and a lot of, uh, I, I, I think, belief that the folks who've been working in the cryptocurrency space uh, have a lot of really valid points about the concentration of power, about uh, uh, the need to be able to come up with systems that work in the other direction from where we've been heading with the cloud, right, which has been to centralize power in a few places. Yes. Um, 
and and the debate might simply be on the path to get there, right? Uh, and That's to what degree is it a binary? You're centralized or not? You know, you are you're a public ledger or you're a private ledger versus a spectrum approach. And are there ways that we can be a gateway drug? Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, or find that there's a happy medium between the two. That actually there's a role for human governance yeah. in these kinds of trust networks. I mean, the whole point we use blockchain tech is for lack of trust, right? For because we want automated systems that help us verify and check the integrity of the data systems we're building in common. But, you know, we might be able to pair that with human institutions that yeah. we've spent thousands of years building as well and find a happy medium between the, the two. Pure software governance just feels wrought with failure, but so does pure human governance. There's probably a happy medium, as, as you say, and actually there are a lot of good governance examples that we can look to learn from in the past couple of decades where software projects can be kind of coordinated. But there's, there is this whole other community element to the crypto world, like a crypto network, as A16Z would call it, is defined not just by how the technology works, not just by the price of the asset that's around it, but also the strength of the community and and the the regularity with which. I, so uh, Vitalik said on stage at, a, at a TechCrunch Disrupt. I think it was last year that you could fork Vitalik, but you couldn't fork the Ethereum community as easily. Like if he just started working on some other chain, would all of the Ethereum holders start mining on that chain and would they start using wallets on that chain? And it's not necessarily so. So there is this increased dimension that's kind of interesting. And, and this this right to fork is something, again, I mean, uh, not to overmap. You've got to fight for an, your right to fork. We've had open source in open source software for a long time. In fact, it's the defining characteristic, mm-hmm. in my view, in many people's view, about what distinguishes open source software from merely source code available kinds of things. Mm-hmm. If you take, you know, uh, Linus Torvalds, right? And if he said one day, you know, this Linux kernel that we're all working, but I'm kind of like acting as, you know, kind of center point for, if we were like kind of similar to Vitalik, let me just say. Linus um, just decides. If yeah. he just, if Linus were to just decide, uh, I, you know, I'm just going to uh, focus on one category of hardware or just focus it on mainframes and supercomputers and forget the IoT devices, you know, whatever, uh, I, the rest of the community could fork, right? Yeah. The, the rest of them could work, uh, branch off from that very same kernel. And that is so much like the way that you can have cryptocurrency networks also fork. You hope that it's rare. Yeah. You hope that it's uh, done for very good reason because there's a solid architectural d- difference of opinions that that naturally bifurcate. And the room is always open for them to come back together, which is interesting too. But the fact that you're able to do that acts as a political uh, uh, device that helps diffuse tensions in the community. It says we all work together because we want to work together. We've got some optimistic outcome or a hope for. But if that doesn't work out, if we actually do have a sincere difference of architectural opinion, we can go our ways without throwing away, one of us having to throw away the investment that we've made. It's a super interesting concept. I guess throwing a, a, a live example in the middle of that, well, not necessarily live, but an example as, as, a, as a thinking process. What about um, tokens, right? So there's been a lot of conversations post-ICO boom around uh, IEOs and then um, security token offerings. And everybody now has a differing opinion on how do I create the tokenized uh, real-world asset or how do I tokenize natively digital assets? Or you know, there's this whole space that's kind of become quite nebulous with lots of different ideas out there. You could end up in a world in which you know your real estate and your uh, traditional securities and derivatives and that, all of those financial markets products just get a bit of a tech upgrade to use a token, but underneath that, there's still a piece of paper somewhere. On the other end, we could have this completely parallel alternate financial universe and financial system. Do you see 
those two worlds coming together closely. And where does, where does Hyperledger as a project start to fit into some of those conversations? Have you seen anything along those lines? So let's distinguish between two, two uses for tokens. One is as an accounting mechanism, and one is as a way to pay for the building of the network. Right? Yeah. So proof of work uh, or paying for mining, uh, kind of uh, using that as a driver for kind of explicitly rewarding people for being a node has never really been part of Hyperledger. Sure. Um, part of it is, I think a lot of people were turned off by burning, let's burn all the CPU power in the universe to run a lottery to figure out the next link in the, the <laughs> next chain, the block in the chain, right? Uh, I, but for, for a lot of people, it felt like unnecessary complication if you simply had a network of 10 or 100 or however many participants who all had an intrinsic motivation to run a full node, right? In the same way that open source software benefits from uh, developers and companies who have an intrinsic motivation in improving the code to make that investment in and and uh, and, and work together, right? Um, uh, and therefore, you don't need the token economics to as a, actually build that network. Um, but actually, uh, having you know serial numbers that is, are associated with titles to different real world objects or to uh, uh, um, financial derivatives and other types of products like that has been core to how these products projects have been used for a long time and. Um, we're going to see a bit more of that perhaps explicitly. So Fabric, uh, the yeah. 2.0 version of that, has support uh, emerging for something called Fab Token, uh-huh. which is an attempt using UTXOs to have this more fungible token kind of support. You can think of it as always having had support for NFTs, yeah. but but you had to build a lot of chain code, which is our smart contract kind of layer to, to get the truly fungible tokens in place. And uh, that's coming in now as a first class order, a first class kind of uh, uh, thing um, to make it easier to do central bank networks or, or things like JPM coin, that sort of thing. Um, Interesting. Uh, uh, and then Aroha and Sawtooth have always had much more native support for fungible tokens as well. Um, so... Uh, I think all of that is super interesting and and super valuable in the kind of blockchain networks that we build. And do you see uh, the regulatory conversation around this space being, because uh, the way I, I tend to characterize regulatory response, perhaps unfairly, but certainly at the very highest level is we like the technology, but not the currency. But actually what you're saying is, there's something in between those where you're using the technology and you're representing value using the technology as something that may not be currency but is something else. Like, is there is there a risk that some of the regulatory responses be, create constraints that might be harmful to the development of the technology? And how material is that risk? Well, I, I think I think to turn it back to you, GDF is doing a remarkable job uh, helping educate the regulators about kind of what the shape of the technologies are and like driving folks to a common code of conduct around uh, uh, the right way to, to to run token offerings or yeah. or I mean like like I think I think there's an essential education process yeah. and harmonization of the taxonomies and stuff that that is beyond the software. When it comes to the software itself, though, I don't see a reason why these the software can't be used out of the box to implement existing regulatory yeah. environments. Right. So the very first uh, uh, formally regulated um, security tokenized securities trading platform is this thing that Swisscom and uh, Deutsche Börse launched called the Daura, yes. uh, which uh, you've probably been tracking, um, uh, and that's built on top of Fabric. Uh, uh, so there's there's nothing inherent to the cryptocurrency approach that makes it, in our view, more suitable to security tokens or or, um, or meeting those types of existing regulatory markets. Entirely possible. Then, uh, yeah, there's there's obviously a couple of flashpoints. I think education is always one. 
two is uh, that real area around could we do a better job of transaction monitoring and KYC AML. Um, there's this real worry about um, financing terrorism, but also um, the not just terrorism, but the uh, just a whole swathe of illicit activity from darknet markets all the way up. And, and, and the solution that worked for the 20th century paper economy or the digitized economy might not work for the digital economy. And so there's, there's some questions there. But I, I take your point. Software engineers will go, well, give me the constraints and I can build you a solution. But if there are no constraints, then what do I need to build? It's, it's kind of almost like you're looking for the constraints. So changing gears slightly, um, you have a summer mentorship program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, you know, as I mentioned, we don't fund development work directly, um, but there's an asterisk on that. And the one place we do is uh, a series of mentorships uh, that we run during the summer break um, focused on students, focused on, and they could be anywhere in the world. In fact, we have a lot of applicants from China and India uh, and a lot of projects that are in there. Um, and part of it is to try to, train up the next generation of developers. Uh, um, but we can only do that, like we have 17 of these internships. So it's right. not so much about scale as it is about uh, uh, trying to bring students well up the kind of contribution curve to becoming hopefully maintainers or hopefully the kind of core contributors that they begin then rally and kind of seed that in the, inside their own organization. I see. Um, partly it's as well to get our other developers uh, to realize that they have a mentorship role to play. Yes. Uh, and and kind of a, it's kind of incumbent. If you're good at your job, it, you know, no matter what the field is, you should be thinking about those who follow you, right? Completely. Uh, uh, so it's partly around that. It's partly around helping say, you know, there's there's a real challenge with diversity across all blockchain projects around the entire computer science uh, uh, space. And one of the few tools I think we have to kind of explicitly try to address that is in mentorship and training and, and bringing uh, uh, new voices up the learning curve. So there's a hope as well that we can do that. Um, and then finally, Open, a lot of the devs on the projects, you know, especially those who are there uh, because their employer is kind of behind and behind them, you know, will have very discrete things that they want to solve, right? Rather than uh, necessarily picking their head up and looking at other projects, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the, the the internships are an opportunity for us to uh, uh, invest in a mentor and a mentee mm-hmm. who can look for interesting ways to try to tie uh, systems together. So, one of them, for example, is uh, around uh, getting a Roja. Uh, which is you know one of our DLTs yeah. to use uh, uh, Hyperledger Ursa, you know the uh, uh, encryption library uh, project that we've started around uh, zero knowledge proofs and yeah. advanced hashing routines, that sort of thing, right? And even if they don't go all the way to finish code that runs in production tomorrow, like they'll do a lot of the groundwork to go what's you know what, what's what's the, architecturally what's possible here, what's the hard stuff, what's the easy bits, maybe we can do a POC, like like um, they'll do a lot of that groundwork, which can be hard for a company to justify doing when it's driven by you know releases every every two weeks and that sort of thing. So yeah, all the, for all those reasons, that's why we have an internship program. That sounds pretty exciting. So tell me about some of the things that are kind of maybe less known that excite you. You mentioned like you've gone kind of broader on some of the projects and deeper on some of them. Um, just, I mean, you, you love all of your children equally, but just <laughs> as, as giving me an example as to something that might be why I want to get activated in the Hyperledger community, like what's something that you think is pretty exciting? So, um, I, I, and, and what excites me, it's sometimes hard to know if it excites others, right? But <laughs> um, uh, I'm excited by the prospect of trying to help uh, move us out of a debate about, you know, Ethereum versus EOS versus, you know, uh, Definity versus, and then all of the uh, uh, kind of commercial or, or enterprise kind of blockchain platforms and to a world where we're talking about kind of uh, optionality at different layers. So um, we recently launched a project called uh, Transact, 
which is intended to try to provide an abstraction layer between uh, the ledger level and the smart contract level so that it becomes easier to, say, take a new smart contract language uh, or language that wants that we want to use for smart contracts like uh, WebAssembly, UASM, yeah. um, and very quickly make that able to be run on top of Fabric, on top of a Sawtooth network, on top of others, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, folks inside Hyperledger are you know, actively looking for where are these natural cleavage points, you know, these natural kind of things where we might say, in, instead of like a full stack kind of like, you know, totally enclosed kind of a system, how do we start to componentize these and make them more interoperable and fungible and hopefully provide an answer to some of this, you know, horse race kind of mentality that I think has emerged in this space? It's almost like um, before the OSI 7 layer model and long before TCIP, there were all of these different sort of layers in a stack and it wasn't really clear how those things would come together. Well, and you could think of it more like the way that operating systems, especially kind of server-side operating systems or enterprise operating systems, used to be thought of as, I mean, even down to the hardware, like you buy a mainframe and it came with the operating system, right? Um, I, I, and, and these days you see Microsoft shipping a full Linux operating system embedded inside of Windows as Linux services for Windows. <laughs> uh, I, and, and, and through containerization, right, and through modularity, increased modularity, uh, the space is a lot richer than just, you know, Mac versus PC um, or Mac versus Windows or something. Uh, That optionality that you get as a result is is phenomenal and and your vendor lock-in is completely gone and you can really start to build whatever it is your business needs in a given area. That's that's super helpful. So what's next for for you and the Hyperledger project? What have you got coming up as you look at the next 12 months? Uh, Continuing to add new members. Uh, And so uh, by the time I think this is released, I will be able to announce that both Salesforce and Microsoft have joined as members. Uh, Really huge for us. Uh, uh, As well as GS1, which is perhaps the largest standard setting organization in the supply chain space. Wow. As well as the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, we, we had partnered with EEA uh, before and had been building on that relationship. And so looking at building a continued more bridges to the Ethereum community uh, is, is something I'm excited about. Uh, because again, like, you know, as, we, as, we, as I said, there's this spectrum kind of effect here, right? And there's a lot for us, I think, that to learn about what's going on in the public ledger space and try to bring to enterprises. Yeah. We just be ignorant to ignore it, right? Or to, to, to pretend that, that it doesn't have any relevancy. There's just so much investment going on there. So, um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, I think we're on the right course. I think, I think our, our mission of kind of going deep on some technologies and trying to be broad-based and be a home to try to harmonize these technologies is a 10-year, 15-year kind of mission, right? It's something that Linux only succeeded after 20 years of kind yeah. of being in that space, right? So um, we're in this for the long haul, and I think we're in the right direction. Then. I think it's probably never been a more exciting time to be there on the ground floor of some of the stuff that's that's getting really exciting. Well, that, that finishes off um, our interview, Brian. Where can people find out more about you and the Hyperledger Project? www.hyperledger.org. Fantastic. Alrighty. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. We'll be back uh, for more on the next Blockchain Insider. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Brian for joining us, as always. Some some interesting developments over there at Hyperledger and some great thoughts about how that sits uh, contextually and where we're at in our evolution in the world of DLT and crypto. Um, is it an or, is it an and? Well, we've got Brian's thoughts. Uh, just to remind you listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next gen of financial services. Uh, we create truly digital propositions. We work with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets their customers. If 
you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, just pop the subscribe button. And uh, if you're already subscribed, please throw us a review. Uh, we understand that Colin's weird metaphors and weird stories about crypto viruses might might sort of hamper that. But Google it, Simon. Throw the, Google it, Simon. Th- th- just throw that in the review. Uh, throw the words Google it, Simon, in a review. We're watching. Uh, Colin, where can people find out more about you other than Googling weird viruses? Well, you know, on Twitter, talking about weird viruses. And you can find me uh, on Twitter as well at SYTaylor or Simon at 11FS.com. A big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, producer Laura, Petra, Hannah, and of course, Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.